Well, you heard this story in Sunday school. You heard it as a child. You heard it uh, even in popular media, and that is Daniel and the lion's den. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 6, and we will look at um, what I hope is a bit of a surprising look at this text, because we're not going to focus on the lions. Just to give us a little background here, the empire of Babylon has been taken over by the Medes and the Persians. They've expanded the, the massive Babylonian empire to now include all the territories and nations that were already controlled by the Medo-Persian alliance. So it's gotten even bigger. And over the Babylonian section, which is huge in and of itself, but over the Babylonian section of the new empire, was placed a 62-year-old Mede named Darius or Darius. Verse 28 of Daniel 6, very end of the chapter. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Why are there two kings here? Well, it seems that Darius was some sort of co-regent with Cyrus, who was likely the emperor over the entire Medo-Persian Empire, but Darius was a king over the Babylonian section, very much a king in every sense of the word, though, as much a king as Nebuchadnezzar ever had been in the previous generations. And so this great man of God, Daniel, taken from Judah by Nebuchadnezzar decades before, he comes to the forefront once again in his own version of what we saw last time in the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being thrown into the, uh, the fiery furnace. And once again, the king, this time Darius, not Nebuchadnezzar, will demand that all worship be directed to him and to him alone. And like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel will refuse and he will worship as he normally does. A couple of weeks ago, we said that we don't know, really know why Daniel wasn't present on the, the plain outside of the plains outside of Babylon when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had to go through their trial. My theory is, is that God already had this one planned. This was Daniel's own trial, his own chance to demonstrate his loyalty. And once again, we're going to see the angel of the Lord coming to the rescue of his faithful servant, the pre-Bethlehem Lord Jesus Christ, saving the life of Daniel as one who stands firm against any idolatry and who would continue worshiping God and God alone. And so since this is so familiar to us, I thought it would be, I thought it would be beneficial to us just to read Daniel chapter 6. We'll read most of it up through verse 24. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. 
All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. And they came near and said before the king, Concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, And Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel. And shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Well, we could take many, many lessons from Daniel chapter 6. We could spend weeks and weeks here. We could talk about the fact that a government decree cannot and must not affect the worship of God's true people. Many, many have pointed to Daniel chapter 6 in this past year as evidence that we worship regardless of what the government says. We could do lessons on prayer. Daniel's consistency 
of three times per day, his humility of being on his knees, his right eschatology of looking to Jerusalem for future hope, his thankful prayers which were woven into his communication with God. We could give lessons on the pride of ungodly rulers. Did you catch how many times that it said these men came by agreement, that they plotted? We could give a warning not to follow them in their foolishness. Or we could give lessons on the retribution of God, that those who had hated the true believer Daniel were punished horribly at the sovereign plan of God. Don't you kind of wish that's what would happen in real life most of the time? But it, it doesn't. But the story has a point. The story ends with a climactic moment that goes far beyond just the relationship between Daniel and Darius, which is an amazing story in itself. It goes far beyond even the tremendous spiritual example which Daniel sets for us. The climactic moment, the purpose of this chapter, is a letter that Darius then sends to all 120 provinces and nations under his control. And this letter declares the dominion of God. This letter declares that there's no God like the God of Daniel. And in this letter from Darius to all his peoples, he gives an inspired statement on the dominion, the domination, the authority, the control, the sovereignty, the might, the sole command of God over all. Verse 25. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. And then he gives an inspired poem. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. As much as I would like to go into the intricacies of how deep was the lion's den and how many lions were there and how many other guys got eaten by the lions, I'd like to just camp on this amazing letter from Darius because that's the whole point of the chapter. And in fact, we can derive a doctrinal statement of the dominion of God from Darius. And we'll build this statement in five parts. And we'll, we'll put it into one sentence. So we're just going to build a sentence together. Five parts of a doctrinal statement on the dominion of God. Tonight is theology. Tonight is us exalting our God by extolling his attributes. Here's the first part of our doctrinal statement. And we, I was so glad Darren read this psalm. Yahweh is the living God. Yahweh is the living God. And we're going to build this sentence. Yahweh is the living God. Darius issues this decree that in his kingdom, people are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. Now, obviously, from a human standpoint, we can't force or decree conversion and salvation. People will still rebel in their hearts. But what he did do was to say it will never again, as long as he was alive, be a crime to worship the God of the Bible. Darius is a king. Kings issue decrees. That's all he knows how to do. And he's issuing a decree that Yahweh is, in a polytheistic culture, the only real God, and therefore he's worthy of worship. That's a big deal to say this in the ancient Near East, to say that there's only one God who's actually alive. And so 
Darius begins his reasons for this decree. For he is the living God. Because, since, for the reason that he is the living God. That means to be alive, to be living. It's the same Hebrew root as the covenant name of God, Yahweh. Which means I am. It speaks of his, his eternal existence. Now, this is very basic to us. We, we say, well, of course God exists. But that's not basic. That's the first thing you have to acknowledge. We live in a wicked world where people worship gods that don't exist. And yes, there may be demonic powers behind them. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 20 tells us the people who offer sacrifices to false gods offer them to demons. But these are pretenders. They're charlatans. And by the way, the so-called the false so-called gods, they know who's really in charge. They believe in the true living God. James 2.19 says, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. But this is where the doctrine of God has to start. With a declaration that He is the living God. That He exists. God's covenant name, His relational name is Yahweh. I am or I am who I am. He was known by His name as far back as Adam and Eve. It's a Christian myth to say that the first time Yahweh revealed his name was to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. Eve knew his name. When Eve gave birth to the first baby born on earth, she said in Genesis 4.1, I have gotten a man with the help of Yahweh. She knew his name. He's called by his name 6,828 times in the Old Testament to reinforce that I am here, I am here, I am here. Yahweh is not an impersonal force to be manipulated or, or some little God to be taken out of the closet only when needed. He's a person. He is a person. He exists. And he's continually declaring his existence over and above the non-living gods that the nations have worshipped since the beginning. Deuteronomy 5.26 Moses said, For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God? speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have. In Joshua 3.10, Joshua said, How is it that you shall know that the living God is among you? First Samuel 17.26, the young boy David, speaking of Goliath, said, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Psalm 84.2, My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. In Jeremiah 10, verse 10, But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. This is so important. God is not a force. God is not a power. God is personal. He is not impersonal. And in Scripture, the personal is always greater than the impersonal. The, the impersonal things of creation are governed by the personal God. And, you know, even the unbeliever knows of the existence of certain things. The unbeliever knows of the existence of cells and molecules and atoms. But he ultimately attributes their existence and their continued existence to some impersonal force that nobody knows how it started. But Scripture says that God is the creator of all things. The impersonal finds its origin in the personal living God, Yahweh. Listen. To live your life as if there is no God is to show really the ultimate fruit of human sin and degradation. 
the created thing refusing to give the creator glory and honor. This is why Psalm 14 verse 1 says, the fool says in his heart, that's the unbeliever is a fool. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Let me put it to you this way. Imagine that you're a child living in a home. And in this home, your father has not only given you life, but he provides everything for you, your food, your water, your shelter. He offers love and affection every day. And yet every day you walk through the house, eating the food, drinking the water, sleeping in the bed that he bought, wearing the clothes that he bought, and you act as if he doesn't exist. You ignore him and you even revile him. By the way, this is the sin that teenagers tend to commit. Why? Because they're following in the footsteps of the fool. But put yourself back in the shoes of this child. On top of that, you tell anyone you can that your father doesn't exist. That he is a figment of other people's imagination. You even, even invite your friends over and tell them how ridiculous it is to believe in your father. And yet he's there all the time, never once receiving thanks, never once receiving honor and the esteem that is due to him. Instead, what ought we to do? Psalm 42, verse 2, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? The one who knows that God is a living God then also knows that the greatest satisfaction, the greatest joy, the greatest filling of the soul happens as a result of thirsting to know God, of being parched and desiring to appear before God to have your spiritual thirst quenched. Yahweh is the living God. This is, by the way, a great question to ask the unbeliever. Do you believe that God is alive? Surprisingly, a lot of them will say yes. And then your door is open to begin to ask, then what would he have you do? What is your relationship to him? Do you owe him anything? Yahweh is the living God. Let's continue building a a statement. Yahweh is the living God, comma, infinite in nature. Yahweh is the living God, infinite in nature. Darius says that God is the living God, enduring forever. For he is the living God, enduring forever. The idea of God being infinite not only encompasses the fact of his eternal being, it also speaks of the fact that he's not subject to any limitations which humanity or the rest of all of creation is subject to. Humanity and creation is by nature finite. We have natural barriers. We have natural boundaries. God isn't bound by space. It is actually incorrect to say God is in every space. No, God made the space. And of course he's in every space and he's outside of every space. We know from the Bible that space has limitations. God is outside of even those. He's not bound. He's everywhere present all the time. God isn't bound by the laws of nature which he created. He operates independently of things like gravity and weather and orbits. The laws of physics, the laws of chemistry is independent of all those things because he made them. I think one of the greatest expressions of the fact that he is infinite is the fact that God isn't bound by time. I'd like to camp on this just for a couple of minutes here. God is not bound by time. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. 
That is a power-packed statement. The English translation everlasting is actually very helpful to us. And if you would simply switch the words of this compound word, it makes even more sense to us that he is from lasting forever to lasting forever. Meaning in our conception of time as finite humans, God's existence goes back in time lasting forever and goes forward in time lasting forever. Job 36.26 puts it this way, Behold, God is great and we know Him not. The number of His years is unsearchable. It can't be counted. Can you grasp the fact that God never began to exist? He never began. Yes, Jesus said, I am the beginning and the end. But that's another way of saying, I am from everlasting to everlasting. God is the one who created time. He's the one who created time markers. What is time from our standpoint? Well, very simply, from a human standpoint, time is marked by the movement of the sun and the moon. It is a measurement of one moment after another, and there can be, we can only be in one moment at a time. We're fascinated by the science fiction idea of time travel. Science fiction and entertainment and scientists alike have been fascinated by this concept of time travel, but really what that does is it places humanity into the realm of God because only God is outside of time as an eternal being. And we we hit a wall really fast because what's always the obvious problem when you try to travel back in time, you have two of yourself, right? Or three or four, and so it doesn't work for us. Let me put it this way. Because God never began to exist and will never cease to exist, God observes all time and all seasons, all epochs, all eras with equal clarity. With equal clarity. God sees all of history with total vividness. Psalm 90 verse 4 says, For a thousand years in your sight, or but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. God's memory doesn't fade. Something in time that occurred a thousand years ago as if it occurred a minute ago. And incidentally, in Hebrew thought, to say something is a thousand years long basically means as long as you can imagine. It's all of history. The Apostle Peter adds to this understanding. He says in 2 Peter 3.8, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. It seems that we can conclude that God experiences everything as present. But God still sees events in time and he acts in time. Galatians 4 verse 4 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. God does not experience time the same way we do. This has been, by the way, the dominant view of the church throughout all of church history. And this has some important ramifications for us. I want to give you several. The first ramification is, is total justice for all sin. Total justice for all sin. From the sin of Eve to the sin of the last person who will ever die, all sins are accounted for. Every single one. And they will either be forgiven on the basis of the cross of Christ in which Jesus took the just wrath of God or at the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20, in which verse 12 says, the books were opened and the dead were judged by what was written in the books. One of the two is going to happen. And this is so important for us because 
God sees all events with equal clarity, equal perfection, equal vividness. You know how in our relationships, when you offend someone, you kind of hope that with the passage of time, there will be some forgetfulness? God does not work that way. He never, ever forgets. This means that when you pray for vindication and when you pray for God's justice to prevail, the only ones irritated by the passage of time is us. God isn't worried about that. He's infinitely patient because there will be total, total justice for all sin. Total justice for all sin. There's a second ramification. The future is certain because God is already there. The future is certain because, in in a sense, God is already there. Here's a mind-blowing passage. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Did you notice? Wouldn't we expect for him to say, declaring the beginning to the end? But he doesn't. He does it backwards in our mind, declaring the end from the beginning. It further shows that he stands outside of time. The future is certain. Now, to our perspective, the idea of Bible prophecy is bound with time. And we're astounded that God can so-called predict what is to come. But God's experience of time is qualitatively different than ours. So it's not as if God is having to do a hard trick or really pull some strings to make certain that his predictions come true. God is from everlasting to everlasting. He's still at the moment of creation as if it were happening now. And he's occupying the kingdom in the new Jerusalem as if it's happening now. He stands above time. There's a third ramification. God is the Lord of time and uses it for his glory. God is the Lord of time and uses it for his glory. He does act in time. In fact, it's often in God's good pleasure to fulfill his promises and enact his redemptive plan over a great long period of time so that we can better see his wisdom, his faithfulness, and his patience. Let me put it to you this way. Genesis 3.15, God made a promise. He promised Satan that one would come who would crush Satan's head and who would be a redeemer for sin. Adam and Eve were there when that promise was made. God has chosen to take thousands and thousands of years to see that promise fulfilled. It took many thousands of years for Christ to come. It could have been that God said, I will bring a redeemer. And Adam and Eve go, hey, look, there he is. And redemption happens. That's not how God has worked. Why is time important for God to be glorified? Listen very carefully. It is by means of time that God proves his faithfulness to you. That's how he does it. For example, you'll live your whole life. You will eventually die. You will, if you know Christ, go to heaven. Why? Because God has been faithful to you. From his eternal choice as one of his own, all the way back to the moment you were, well, all the way to the moment you were welcomed heartily into heaven. Through this course of time, God has been faithful, and this faithfulness is proven by the passage of time. There's one more ramification. Time will always be the human experience for our benefit. 
Time will always be the human experience for our benefit. We, we sing a beloved hymn that says, time will be no more. And that sounds wonderful, but that's not what the Bible says. That's a Christian myth that in the coming kingdom, the passage of time will cease. And we can prove this to be false in two very easy ways. First of all, there's going to be a new creation, new heavens and new earth, which includes, by the way, a new sun and a new moon. What is it that we use to measure time now? The sun and the moon. Revelation 21:23 says, The city, that is New Jerusalem, has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light. It doesn't say there is no sun and moon. It just says the city is so lit up that the sun and moon don't make a difference. But there is a sun and moon, and we know this. Because there's a second reason this is easy to show, that we'll still enjoy the benefits of time. In the picture of New Jerusalem given in Revelation 22, we read, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God, and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each, what? Month. What is a month? One moon cycle. Now, if the concept of God's timelessness, His infinite nature, is mind-boggling, that's the point. That is the point. I am going to be speaking on this next week, but any theological system that tries to reduce God to be understandable is a false system. Job 36 already said, who can understand Him? If God is infinite and and part of his infinity is his timelessness, then theoretically, and we know this to be true, everything we learn about God means we haven't made a dent in knowing anything about God. This is why Psalm 16 can say, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. If every Sunday morning you learn something new about God, I want you to imagine this, that one trillion years from now you will still be learning new things about God and there won't be an end to the supply of glories that you will learn about God. I can't wrap my mind around that. I barely remember what I had for breakfast. We're not, we're not built for this. What we are built for, though, is to take that concept of the infinity of God And to stand in awe and wonder and amazement and astonishment, maybe even a little bit of shock at the eternal, infinite nature of God. Let's keep building our doctrinal statement here. Yahweh is the living God, infinite in nature, another comma if you're a stickler for grammar, king of an imperishable kingdom. King of an imperishable kingdom. Darius continues in his great doxology. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. We've already seen this predicted in Daniel. Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. At the end of verse 26 here in our chapter, and his dominion shall be to the end. doesn't mean there will be an end to his dominion. It means that, that it will never end. This kingdom of God on earth will have two distinct eras or phases or stages, the millennial reign of Christ and the eternal state. Let's talk about those for a moment. The millennial reign of Christ, what is that? God's covenant with Abraham 
to give him a nation and a people and a land is going to finally be fulfilled. God's covenant with David, that David's descendant would sit on the throne of Israel, will be fulfilled. The new covenant in which all of God's people are gathered together, indwelt by the Holy Spirit and possessing resurrection bodies, that will be fulfilled. The governments of the world will be subservient to Christ. Isaiah 2, verse 4, He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. You know what that means? Election day is canceled forever. Christ will decide who's in charge. There will still be mortal sinners left over from the great tribulation. Many, many will come to faith in Christ while Christ is the benevolent, all-wise ruler of the whole world. Satan will be bound. He'll be unable to impact the world as he has for so long now. Revelation 20 tells us this. The reign of Christ will be characterized by righteousness and faithfulness. Isaiah 11, beginning in verse 4, says, With righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The world will be filled with peace. Isaiah 32, 18, My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. The world will be filled with joy. Isaiah 9, 3, You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. The world will be filled with the knowledge of God. Jeremiah 31, 34, No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The world will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Joel 2 verse 28, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. What does that mean? It means that in the course of daily life, your very mind will be penetrated and permeated by the Spirit of God and all the thoughts that He would have you think. Creation will be freed of the curse of sin. Romans 8, beginning in verse 19, says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. What does that mean? It means that creation, as it were, personified as a person, is waiting for all of us to be perfected. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. As part of the removal of the curse of sin and creation, the animal kingdom won't be characterized by killing and violence. Isaiah 11 says that the prey and predator relationship will cease. The earth will yield its harvest, freed from the curse of thorns and thistles. Isaiah 32, 15 says, When the Spirit is poured upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. 
I know in our area here, farming is a big industry. And what is farming? It is a battle to subdue the ground continually. No more. You're walking around and going, hey, look, there's an orchard. I didn't even do anything. Now, there will still be death for those descended from the survivors of the Great Tribulation. There still will be sin. Otherwise, Christ wouldn't have to act as judge of disputes. Revelation 20 tells us that this magnificent kingdom of Christ will last for a thousand years. Satan will be released and one last very short-lived rebellion will take place. Revelation 20 tells us this. The final judgment of Satan and all who have ever followed him takes place and then by the creation of the new heavens and the new earth, the coming down out of heaven of the new Jerusalem, what happens then? 1 Corinthians 15 beginning in verse 24 says, Then comes the end. When he, that is Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjected under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who puts all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. What does all that mean? It means that the kingdom of God is not about us. Although we enjoy a tremendous eternal blessing, the kingdom of God is a gift presented from the Son to the Father. But what's the purpose of the future kingdom of God? Well, quite simply, to glorify God by bringing about His original plan for creation. To glorify God by bringing about His original plan for creation, for humanity. When God created Adam and Eve, He gave them dominion over the world. God established a theocratic kingdom in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 1.26 tells us this. But when Adam and Eve sinned, they lost this ability to rule the earth as God's representative. And they handed the rule of the world temporarily over to who? To Satan. When Satan was tempting Jesus in the wilderness... He said to Jesus in Luke 4, verse 6, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. But by means of the cross of Christ, the forgiven citizens of God's kingdom are being added to the ranks. They're being given their white linen robes of righteousness as they arrive in heaven until that day when Christ comes back, takes back what he's purchased with his own blood, reigns for a thousand years, presents a purified kingdom to God the Father, and brings all creation into the new state of the eternal new heavens, the eternal new earth, the eternal new Jerusalem, with full perfect fellowship with God, with full perfect fellowship one with another, and with full enjoyment of a pristine new paradise-like earth. And Darius believed this. I want you to think about this. Darius was at that time the second most powerful man on planet earth. Second only to Cyrus. And yet he rightly says that his kingdom is temporary. His is passing. And he's ascribed to God the glory due to the one whose kingdom will never be destroyed. Yahweh is the living God. Infinite in nature. King of an imperishable kingdom. Let's add to our statement, fourth, who demonstrates grace and mercy to the lost. Who demonstrates grace and mercy to the lost. 
verse 27, Darius, based on the evidence of Daniel's salvation from the lions, he ascribes grace and mercy to God. He says, he delivers and rescues. The rescue of Daniel from the lions paints a very vivid and easy to understand picture of salvation from sin. In fact, let's analyze quickly the characteristics of Daniel's rescue. First of all, his rescue was 100% God's choice. His rescue was God's choice. Verse 22. This is Daniel speaking. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Now, obviously, it can't be that Daniel was sinless, so God saved him. The idea of being found blameless in the Old Testament speaks of one who has been chosen by the grace of God. Notice who the angel of the Lord was sent by, by God. Do you think Daniel had a theological argument with himself? Well, I believe in free will, and I'm going to choose that God will come down and save me from the lions. That's my choice. Of course not. It was 100% God's choice. Daniel didn't make an independent, intellectual, free will choice that God should send help. God simply sent help. It's the second characteristic of Daniel's rescue. His rescue was total and complete. It's not that the lions just took off an arm or a leg and at least Daniel survived. No, the mouths of the lions were shut. They have not harmed me. And it says in verse 23, no kind of harm was found on him. That implies, by the way, that he was examined. Any scratches, any bites, just one little nick here? No, none. His rescue was total and complete. And there's a third characteristic. Daniel was then separated from that which threatened him. He was separated from that which threatened him. He was taken out of the pit. And this is an obvious picture of salvation from sin because our salvation from sin has the same characteristics our rescue is 100 percent god's choice acts 13 48 says when the gentiles heard this meaning the gospel they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the lord and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed that was god's choice our rescue was total and complete it was total it was complete Psalm 103, verse 11, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And we are separated from that which threatened us. We're separated from it. Romans 6, beginning in verse 6, says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Yes, sin nature is still hanging on to us until we go to glory, but sin has no legal authority over us whatsoever. Why? Because Romans 8.1 promises, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He demonstrates grace and mercy to the lost. Let's do one more. Yahweh is the living God, infinite in nature, king of an imperishable kingdom, who demonstrates grace and mercy to the lost and glorifies himself in mighty power. And glorifies himself in mighty power. Verse 27, he delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. What are signs and wonders? We tend to shorten that to what we more popularly call miracles. 
What is a miracle? Well, basically, a miracle is an event brought about by God's power that's so out of the ordinary that we consider it to be impossible. You have the the flood of Noah. You have the parting of the Red Sea. You have the long day of Joshua 10 in which the sun seemed to stand still. A miracle is related to two factors, nature and time. A miracle is related to nature in that God causes some sort of exception or some sort of interruption of the natural laws which he himself has already created, the regular processes and boundaries by which God governs creation. They're they're interrupted. And a miracle is related to time because miracles are immediate. They're explainable only by supernatural intervention by God. Now, to be honest with you, I think we tend to overuse the word miracle. My child cleaned his room without being asked. It's a miracle. The line at the Department of the Motor Vehicles was empty and I got right in. It's a miracle. No, a miracle is related to God superintending natural law and doing so immediately. In the case of Daniel and the lion's den, we got a behind-the-scenes look at this miracle The angel of the Lord closed the mouths of the lions, interrupting what the lions normally would have done, and he did so immediately when the need presented itself. We have to take it a step further because a major purpose of miracles in the Bible is to authenticate the messenger of God, to demonstrate that the messenger is authentically from God. Moses worked miracles in front of Israel in Exodus 4 in anticipation of Israel's skepticism that Moses was God's spokesman. In 1 Kings 17, the mother of a resurrected son through the prophet Elijah said in verse 24, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. The apostles were authenticated as the messengers of God by means of their miracles. Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 3, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. And so ultimately, miracles point us to the dominion and to the power and to the authority and the presence of God. They point us to his power, to his message, to his way of salvation, all for the ultimate purpose of what? Of his glory. And so our doctrinal statement of the dominion of God, Yahweh is the living God, infinite in nature, king of an imperishable kingdom who demonstrates grace and mercy to the lost and glorifies himself in mighty power. Now you may have noticed that I have ignored the obvious theme of this message this whole series and that is the angel of the lord we barely mentioned him darius attributes these great truths to god in general but who did the things he spoke of in rescuing daniel it was the angel of the lord the lord jesus christ 600 years before his own birth the same statement applies jesus christ is the living god Death couldn't keep Jesus in the grave. Why is that? When the Apostle John was visited by the Lord Jesus on the island of Patmos, Revelation 1.17 says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Jesus is the living God. Jesus is infinite in nature. 
John 17, 5, Jesus prayed, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is king of an imperishable kingdom. God the Father says of God the Son in Hebrews 1.8, listen to the statement of the deity of Christ. This is God the Father speaking of his own Son. Of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Jesus demonstrates grace and mercy to the lost. Jesus said in Luke 19, verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And Jesus Christ glorifies himself in mighty power. Jesus performed miracles which superseded the laws of nature and they were immediate. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He controlled nature itself by calming storms. He created food by feeding tens of thousands miraculously. He read the thoughts of men and just for effect, he walked on water every once in a while. Now you remember that the miracles of God authenticate his messengers. Well, Jesus is the ultimate messenger of God, God himself in the flesh. And the miracles of Jesus not only gave us a preview of his coming kingdom, which is devoid of sin and disease, but John 20, beginning of verse 30 says, Now Jesus did many other signs, miracles, in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may, what? Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. God performs miracles today. He does so at his own pleasure. He doesn't need miracle workers. But listen carefully, we don't need miracles to authenticate the message of Christ. That's been done. These miracles are written that you may believe. We don't need to see miracles. The lost need the word of God, which attests to the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the living God. He is infinite in nature. He's the king of an imperishable kingdom. He demonstrates grace and mercy to the lost. And he glorifies himself in mighty power. Here's a miracle for you. And we'll relate this miracle to all five of the declarations of the dominion of God. That miracle is your regeneration. The placing and moving of the Holy Spirit in your soul John 3, beginning in verse 6, Jesus explained that that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And what has this done for you? Listen very carefully. First, the living God has imparted his life to you. Galatians 2.20 says that Christ lives in you. What does this mean? It means that you now partake of God's infinite nature. And not in the sense of being infinite like God is infinite, but in the sense of being alongside God for all of eternity. 1 John 3.2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. The end of 1 Thessalonians 4 makes this amazing statement that we shall always be with the Lord. And so the living God imparts his life to you. The infinite God imparts eternity to you. Third, you'll be a citizen of the imperishable kingdom of Christ. Ages and eons and epochs after the wicked kingdoms of the world have fallen, you will still be a citizen of the heavenly kingdom. 
The kingdoms of the world will be serving the king of all the kings and the Lord of all the lords. Fourth, the grace and mercy of God to the previously lost will continue and continue and continue. I already mentioned the end of 1 Thessalonians 4 says we will always be with the Lord. His grace will always continue. And finally, you will continue to see the glory of God in mighty power. And let me tell you something that's very exciting to me. That which is miraculous to us now will be normal in the new kingdom. Now that will just be normal life on planet new earth. What we now consider miraculous is just daily life. What's the application of these great truths? Well, it's very simple. Darius has already told us, verse 26, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. What does it mean to tremble and fear before God? It means to obey the gospel. It means you obey the gospel by repenting of your sin, calling upon the name of the Lord for mercy, understanding that God has declared his own dominion and this dominion is accomplished through Christ and Christ alone and you'd better choose wisely because Matthew 12, verse 30, Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me. And the only way to be with Christ is to bow down to him and to acknowledge his dominion, just as Darius has done here. To acknowledge your sin, your need for forgiveness. To declare your allegiance to him. I don't know if Darius is making this statement as an unbeliever or a believer. I'd like to think he's a believer. Certainly is orthodox. But unbelievers can say orthodox things without having personal faith. I hope we get to meet him. I think that would give God glory. One more thought. This God who is the God of dominion, who is the living God, infinite in nature, king of an imperishable kingdom who demonstrates grace and mercy to the lost and glorifies himself in mighty power, this God who is from everlasting to everlasting makes a promise to you. Psalm 103, verse 17 says, But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him and His righteousness to children's children. Did you catch this? Listen carefully. God never started loving you. God has always loved you. When Ephesians 1 says that he chose you before the foundation of the world, it doesn't mean there was a point in time. It just means we can't fathom what eternity past means. If God has set his steadfast love on you from everlasting to everlasting, that means if we're going to stay consistent, that God never began loving you and he'll never stop loving you. Anybody who says, well, I might lose my salvation is silly. God is bigger than that. Not only is God from everlasting to everlasting, but his love for all who have come to faith. He has always loved you, and he always will love you. Aren't you glad that this God of dominion you may call Abba? You may call Father, the most powerful being of all, all time, if we can even think about time, is your Father. That is a tremendous thought. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you. We fall before you. We fear you. We tremble before you. And yet, you also take our hands. You lead us, as it were, as your special children through the glories of the kingdom, through the glories of heaven where we are always welcome. 
And for all of us here who know Christ, it will just be a short number of years or or decades before we're with you. And how we long for that, to see the dominion of God lived out in ways we can't possibly fathom now. I pray, Lord, that the declaration of Darius is that of every person listening to this. He is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. We give you honor and glory. We thank you for your grace. You are a mighty, 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 mighty God. We look forward to an eternity of discovering more and more of who you are. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.